You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. 24 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock. It's time for us to answer your science questions on this Monday afternoon. Dr. Chris Smith from Cambridge University is a virologist, joins us every Monday uh, just after 2.30 to field your questions. So go on and give us a call now on 011-883-0702. And um, Chris, good afternoon. Hello. As another interesting week, isn't it? As we, we've got uh, rovers trundling around on Mars and yeah. at the same time we're trundling around on Earth trying to work out how to get out of this pandemic situation. But we're making progress, we all hope. Yes, and we had so many fascinating questions about uh, this Mars rover last week. We weren't even able to uh, get to all of them, but it certainly has captivated the imagination. Is there anything to report on uh, what it sent down to Earth? Well, the the big step forward is that it's now on the move and we've got pictures of it trundling around. I mean, it's an amazing piece of technology, this, but obviously you've got to take sort of baby steps to make sure that you have got everything working properly before you start telling it to run before it can even walk or roll, <laughs> rather. But I, I think this is really exciting because it's exciting on so many levels. On On one level, it shows that you can basically hit the bullseye of a dartboard from 100 million kilometers away, which is just an amazing achievement to land not just on another planet, but to land on another planet in a crater, in a predefined place, and land a craft which is the size and mass of a small car from a floating platform hovering above the planet's surface, lower the thing down, get it mobilized, get it driving around. And at the same time, this mission is equipped with the latest tech, which will enable it to look for the signs or hallmarks of life yeah so we'll be able to to not just go in pursuit of chemicals that might be hallmarks of life but take samples of those chemicals and not just analyze them in situ but package them up ready for the mark two of this mission which is to get those samples home here to earth we'll have never had a sample of mars here on earth apart from meteorites which we've picked up in various places there are some some samples which uh, we know are martian because they contain various gas bubbles trapped inside them and we know what the composition of various isotope ratios is in the martian atmosphere so we can confirm that the the bits of mars that we've got here on our surfaces do come from that planet but what we haven't got are critically sedimentary samples bits of the basically riverbeds and lake beds of what was once a very watery planet we can get those and we can begin to, to analyze them. In, in the future, we'll have them here on Earth. But for now, we've, we've got Perseverance and its helicopter ingenuity, which will be buzzing about hopefully before too long and exploring this amazing part of Mars. Yes. Wow. Uh, maybe those questions will come up again today. Let's see. You never know what we get in the questions every single uh, Monday. We've got Prince first out the gates calling us from Bedford View. And you can also give us a call on 011-883-0702 to chat to Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Hello, Prince. Adanya, it is my favorite time of the week. Me too. My question today for Naked Scientist is, why is it that when you have to focus on something, then you forget easily? So let me give you an example. Um, you notice that sometimes you struggle to fall asleep. Or the moment you switch on a movie, you find out that you easily fall asleep. So is there anything mentally that makes <laughs> it that when we have to focus on something, and then we respond? <laughs> and, and then quickly, let me just see this last one in, please. Kabazela wasn't killed because he doesn't allow two questions. But let me just sneak this last one in. Um, um, is it true, medically, medically, is there anything that happens to adults who do not have sex? I'm asking this for, like, for instance, you know, there are people like the Reverend Father, um, the Catholic priests, who do not get married. So if you do not have sex for your entire adult life, is there any physical 
or mental effect to not having sex as an adult who is supposed to have sex. Okay, that's an interesting one, Prince. Uh, how do you want to take them, Chris? Well, let, let's save the sex for in a minute because that will make sure people listen for a bit longer, <laughs> won't it? Because they'll be dying to know the answer <laughs> yeah, to that guess, one. Yeah. The focusing on things first, I think remember that when you, when you tell yourself you've got to do something and you apply yourself, it's a bit mentally fatiguing. And when you're already a bit tired, if you then settle down to do something which actually you're just doing it because you're relaxing, then all your systems switch off. And unless it's something that's actively engaging you and you're just sort of gently attending to it, but you're tired and you don't have to pay attention to it because your life doesn't depend on it, like driving a car or something, you can fall asleep because you've feel relaxed for the first time in ages and it allows you to drift off and also there's this phenomenon of reverse psychology when i was at medical school there was a friend of mine who who said he sometimes struggled to get to sleep at night and uh, his solution was to try to stay awake and i said what on earth do you mean and he said well i'll lay there and instead of thinking i'm not falling asleep and panicking about that which would make the problem worse he would actively try to focus on staying awake in the dark and force himself to think about things. And he got so bored thinking about things that he was trying to think about that he would then drift off to sleep and it worked every time. So the power of reverse psychology is a good one. Now, the question of of whether or not abstinence affects your health. Well, if it's a conscious choice to be abstinent and you've decided that you don't want a relationship, you want a relationship and he cited a religious group. Mm -hmm. If you've decided decided that you want to have a relationship with with a, a God, then you're going to feel just as fulfilled and happy because that is your choice. Where people tend to be less happy and it can therefore cause mental illness or mental ill health is if it's not your choice and you can't have a partner for various reasons. And that might be because of social reasons. It could be because of physical reasons. There are a whole range of reasons why that could happen. The physical act of having sex, though, no one's life depends on that apart from your unborn child. Um, the, you know, if you don't want to reproduce, mm. you don't have to reproduce and there's no evidence that's going to cause a major impact on your health. There is some weak evidence for women that, that certain things like pregnancy will affect the risk of certain diseases like ovarian cancer, possibly breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And the, there's some evidence it might reduce the risk of that a bit. And the reason for this is thought to be because of hormonal cycles and things, because some cancers are initiated or driven by hormones in the bloodstream they change a lot during the menstrual cycle of course and if you have fewer menstrual cycles because you're pregnant for at least some of your time then that may affect the the uh, risk factors for certain particularly gynecological type cancers but that's not to say that people who uh, don't choose to have or choose not to have children uh, suffer a, a problem with not living very long there are many many very long-lived people in history who don't have health problems just because they choose not to have children so i think it comes down to conscious choice if it's your conscious choice uh, and you're happy with that choice, it's not causing you psychological distress, there's very little to say that that's going to cause you uh, me- mental or other ill health. And as many parents will attest, having children comes with enormous numbers and particularly mental health challenges. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they can be very, very trying at times, including problems like postnatal depression and all that kind of thing and uh, sleep deprivation and, and worrying about your children, which our children don't realise we do, but we worry about them all the time, don't we? And hence the so, grays, uh, yes. Yes. So therefore, there is yes, quite. Um, and so therefore, there is the, the the reassuring note is: don't worry if you if you choose not to have sex, or your life's not going to make any difference. But if you do 
end up in a position where you want a relationship and you can't have one, that could make you stressed and depressed. Yeah. And that's the the issue where you think, well, maybe I'll do something about that. And how you how you choose to go about that will be very much dependent on why it's happening in the first place. Right. Next, we go to Sam in Tembisa. Hello, Sam. Hi, Azani. How are you? Good. And how are you, Sam? Cool, man. I just want to check with uh, Dr. Chris. No? Mm. Um, why is it that... Because right now we are we are we are using satellites to communicate, right? Yeah. So why is it that uh, aircraft manufacturers are still installing flight data recorders and uh, cockpit voice recorders in aircraft? What I'm just thinking now, I mean, if, as, as the aircraft is flying, mm. surely that information can be transmitted, right, back to a to say to a server at the end of of the airline or something, instead of waiting for the aircraft to 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 have an accident and then get people to try to retrieve the, the, those, those two recorders and sometimes they are damaged. Okay. So why not use satellite? Hi, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The, the answer is, Sam, that the airlines do use satellites up to a point and they do send various pings to alert satellites of where the aircraft are. But the amount of data that they want to store sometimes would not be compatible with the line of sight to a satellite because aircraft don't always fly where satellites are. For instance, the Malaysian Airlines flight that disappeared somewhere over the Indian Ocean, or we think it disappeared over the Indian Ocean, one of the reasons it was difficult to track down exactly where it went and what happened to it was because that particular patch of the Earth is not well served by satellites. We tend to put satellites over places where there are people unless they are incidental weather satellites or or geological or other monitoring satellites where it's useful to scan massive stretches of open ocean. But as a result, we don't tend to place our satellites within line of sight of huge swathes of ocean because it would serve no purpose. So therefore, flights go where satellites don't and vice versa. And that means that would limit the connectivity. Also, you don't want to put all your faith in one particular measure alone. So by having those data recorders, that's an industry standard. They are, there's a pair of them, and they are pretty indestructible. And they're not black, although we call them the black box. They're actually bright red to make them easy to see and find, hopefully, if you if you can, amongst either wreckage or in a sunken aircraft. And thankfully, remember, these sorts of things are really rare anyway. But but data are sent to satellites, and one company that I'm familiar with, Rolls-Royce, for example, who build the engines that power maybe a third of the world's air fleet, they have a flight control room in the UK, and they are receiving back what they call on-wing monitoring data sent back in real time from their engines. And this enables them to monitor the performance of their engines, to do original research around how those engines are performing in real-world situations, predict when they're going to need servicing, and therefore massively speed up the rate at which they can turn around the servicing and the maintenance and the safety um, checking of their engines on all their journeys. So this does happen. It's it's wrong to say that we don't use various communication mechanisms to relay data back to base about what aircraft are doing and how the different components are working. But you do need that backup system on board of recording all the different data, including what the aircraft itself is doing, what the people are saying and so on. Because that way, if there is a disaster, you know you've got a faithful, totally indelible record that hasn't been manipulated, corrupted or possibly lost right up to the moment when the aircraft may have its terminal moments, which wouldn't necessarily be the case if you were relying on a radio transmission to a satellite. If the transmitter broke or the electricity mm-hmm. broke down on the flight, you wouldn't you wouldn't have that data. So you always need that backup. All right. Thank you, Sam. And next, your voice notes before we come back to the lines. 
Hi, Niket Scientist. It's Mandla from Pretoria. Um, I have a question. We are told that uh, whenever a temperature increases on a metal, the, 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 the material expands. So my question is, when we apply brakes on a car, we know that the, the brake discs are made of um, cast iron. So we, are, we apply brakes sometimes at 220 kilometers an hour. Why is it that we don't find a situation where the disc brakes have expanded to a point where the car cannot drive anymore? Mm. Thanks. Wow. Hi, Mandela. The, the answer is that, yes, the materials in the brakes do get very hot because when you are applying the brakes in a car, you are converting the kinetic forward energy of the car into thermal energy in the brakes. That's how the brakes work because the discs are behind the wheels. Either side of the discs are pads which are pressed onto the disc by a, what's called a caliper, which when you put your foot on the brake pedal pushes the discs, uh, pushes the pads onto the disc surface so they rub together. And that rubbing, because of friction, will generate huge amounts of heat. But good brake systems will be well ventilated they are very good thermal conductors. They have a big surface area and you're normally only braking for short periods of time. So as a result, yes, there will be some expansion. That expansion will be in the thickness of the disc. It will potentially also expand the pad material, but that will only have the effect of making the brakes squeeze on a bit tighter. And then when you take your foot off the brake, it will allow the, because the caliper will relax, it will let the pads come back off the disc enough that things don't then clog up because there's always a little bit of play in the system. You don't put pads in that are so tight they're squeezing on the disc hard even when they're cold. So as a result, there is, there is some free play in the system to accommodate for that and the fact that the heat quite quickly dissipate. And if you look at really high-performance vehicles, say look at a motorbike, for example, they often have disc brakes and you'll see that the discs actually have a pattern cut into them. And the purpose for that is to boost air circulation and surface area of the material so that it can cool itself down and shed excess heat much more quickly to keep the braking efficiency as high as possible. Hmm. Thank you for that question. Next, let's go back to the lines to another Sam, but this time in Pretoria. Hello, Sam. Hi, good afternoon, mm, Hello. Oh, this is a wonderful, a wonderful program. I have a very quick question for the energy scientists. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to construct an angle of one degree using a pair of compasses and a rule? Is it possible? Yeah, well, it is, because I'll tell you how, and this is a slightly cheaty answer, but you can bisect, in other words, cut into any angle. And the way you do it is that you take a compass, you stick the point in the point of the angle, and you cut one of the lines and then sweep round and cut the other line. And then you put your compass, open it up, point into where you've made the two cuts in the two lines and you make different intersections uh, either side of the angle and draw a line between them and you will bisect or cut in half an angle. So, yes, you could make a one degree angle that way because you take an angle of two degrees and bisect it using the method I just said and then you'll get two one degree angles. I kind of struggled to visualize that. Uh, Sam, why were you thinking about that? No, I've gone to kind of a drawing and uh, I'm working on a very ambitious program mm. uh, where... Um, uh, I want to find a quickest way of uh, constructing uh, impossible angles 
Uh-huh. Uh, which, of course, you don't need to bisect. Uh, you know, I've been working on that project for the past 50 years, and uh, I'm almost coming up with a very uh, uh, ingenious way. So that's why I asked for the naked scientist, if mm-hmm. it is possible. That's a very smart thing to I'll join the world record of um, the Guinness World Records book. Oh, wow. Okay, well, Sam, do keep us posted. Yeah, that's right, Tanya. Thank you so very much. This is a very educative program. Wonderful. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for that question. Right. Right. Any comments there, Chris? No, I look forward to seeing his solution. My one was a cheaty one because it said to have a one-degree angle, you cut it in half. Yes. <laughs> cut in half a two-degree angle to get yes. a one-degree angle. So I'm cheating. Um, so technically, if, if, it would if be something. If there are clever ways of doing this, someone must tell me because yeah. I, I don't know all the nuances of this, and geometry is not my number one strong point. But certainly, what <laughs> I, the answer I gave is is true and will absolutely work. But it it does presuppose you've already got a two-degree angle to start with. Yes, yes. I wonder if anybody else is listening. Maybe you can give us a guide um, and give Sam another alternative apart from the one that um, Dr. Smith has. Um, shared. That's so interesting. Just, yeah, like I said, you always get such curious questions in the afternoon. We're with the Naked Scientist, and next we go to uh, Anthony in Edenvale. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Zania. How are you doing? Good. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, Chris, I've got a question for you. Uh, as far as I know, my understanding is when you look at the, the uh, sky uh, at night, and you see the stars, you see those stars effectively that were millions of years ago. Is that correct? Yes, so So light travels at a a defined speed, doesn't it? So therefore the light that's reaching us here on Earth is light that's been travelling across space at the speed of light, which is is 3 times 10 to the 8 metres per second. So uh, 300,000 kilometres per second. And because it's got that finite okay. speed and space is very big, some of the stars that you see in the night sky, they don't exist anymore. They are stars that uh, burned uh, burned away and blew themselves up and, and ceased to exist a long time ago. But the light they gave out has been travelling so far, it's taken all that time to get to us. And the parent star that made it now no longer exists. Okay. So now my question is, if you look at Mars, okay, we know Mars is still existing because... Uh, uh, there's uh, one of our robots on Mars now, okay? Mm-hmm. I don't know how many millions of kilometers away Mars is from Earth. I mean, uh, but nevertheless, my question is, is on, I've seen on uh, numerous social uh, media platforms, there's a picture from Mars of Earth. So Earth now looks like a star from Mars, okay? Now, yep. is that picture seeing Earth millions of years ago? Is that picture seeing Earth now? And if it's seeing Earth now, then why is it that from Earth we only seeing things that are millions of years ago? Right. Okay. Chris? I'm not sure I completely get the question, but Mars is very, very close to us. Uh-huh. Mars is our next nearest planetary neighbour. Yeah. At its closest, it's about 40 million kilometres. But because Earth goes round the, the in, in one Earth year, it takes Mars twice as long to do one lap of the solar system than earth does Mm. so every two years the two planets are quite close together about 40 million kilometers between them but uh, at some point they're going to be as far away from each other as they can be because mars will be on one side of the solar system earth will be on the other and it's about 100 million 
um, kilometers to Mars under those circumstances. But that's still nothing compared to the vastness of space when you're talking about billions of light years away. I mean, that's a dramatically different distance. Mars is very tiny. It's a planet much smaller than the Earth. So not surprisingly, when it reflects some light back from the sun, you see a star pinpoint of light in the sky. But the stars that are out there that are not planets, that are real stars like our sun, they are thousands of times bigger, if not in some cases millions of times bigger than Mars is. So even though they are that much bigger, because they're that much further away, they still look like a little point of light, but their light has come across millions of light years of space, not just millions of kilometers of space. Okay. Uh, I think he's also just kind of saying that we see other planets that are there. They haven't come to their end. We see them as stars, just like Earth was seen as a star from Mars. But I think we also yep. see other planets as stars here. That's right. And the reason that um, the ancient Greeks, in fact, realized that the stars weren't all just one single entity is because some of the stars moved around. Uh, there are stars that are static in the night sky relative to each other and then others that moved around very frequently and oh. moved a lot. Wow. And hence they gave them the name planets, as in they called them planetes, which means wanderers, because there were these stars that appeared to be staying in one place and stars that appeared to wander around. And it's the planetes that we now realize they are the planets. They look like stars because they are reflecting the light from our sun back to us. They're not actually producing their own light. They're reflecting light. And because they're very small, but they're close, they produce a star spot, a pinpoint of light. But the stars, the real stars, they're a really long way away. But they are producing their own light, which is coming across space, but over vast difference, distances. But they're huge to start with, but they're a long way away and very bright. Okay. So they look like a pinpoint of light. Mars, much closer, reflecting a little bit of light. So looks like a star as well but it's the movement that gives them away if you if you haven't got a telescope to tell the difference okay right and one final one let's see if we can do this Frank, one just, i mean this question has been asked for i think as far as i can remember um i know it's a, a dumb question but you know everything else in the planet especially the planet they look around from outer space yet they are flat when you land. Can you just explain that <laughs> phenomena? Because, you know, it's, it's always baffled me. Like, you know, yeah. what happens to the people at the South Post, <laughs> at the South Pole, I mean? You know, why are they not <laughs> falling from space? If the Earth is flat, but when you see it from space, it's round. Thank right. you very much. Okay, Chris, I would ask that you respond quickly. Yep. And please, no flat I Earthers. Do. Please don't. No. <laughs> flat Earthers don't come into this one. Planets are balls. They're spherical. And that's because that's the most sort of energy efficient and gravitationally efficient way for all of the matter to be as close to all of the other matter as possible. So not notwithstanding mountains and lumpy bumpy bits, planets are by and large spheres. But they're so big relative to us that when we stand on their surface, it looks like it's flat and we're being pulled down through our feet towards the center of mass. So it feels like downwards is towards the center of the planet because gravity acts through the center of any given body. And in fact, you can calculate the distance to the horizon using the 124 rule. It's 1.24 times the square root of your eyes above the sea level or to the ground level is the distance to the horizon. So if you're five foot eight, the square root of five foot eight 
times 1.24 will tell you the distance in miles to the horizon. And, oh. and then at that point, the Earth curves away. And you can see the Earth curving because if you watch a ship sail off into the distance, the ship will disappear over the horizon, but it won't disappear all at once. You'll see the bottom of the ship disappear until just the top half of the ship is left, and then the <laughs> top of the top half, and then the ship disappears as it goes over the curvature of the Earth. But gravity is pulling everything all the time equally down towards the center okay. of the Earth, and that causes it to appear flat to us in our tiny short distance close to the Earth's surface, but in fact it is a giant ball. Right, I think we'll podcast that formula because some of us need to go back and really think about it. Chris, as always, fascinating. Thank you. Doesn't time fly? See you next week. Absolutely.